Thank you, worship team. Good morning, High Point. Good morning, guests of High Point. Thank you for coming and being with us. My name is Femi, uh, spelled F-E-M-I, and I'm one of the elders here, and I'll be reading the scripture for today. Um, that can be found in Mark chapter 10 on page 1540 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We'll be reading verses 13 through 21. Mark chapter 10, starting from verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms placed his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. Hey, everyone. If you're newer, this is the fourth and final week of our um, spirituality series on the love of God. And you, I, you know, you could probably talk about the love of God for like 780 weeks in a row. So if you do it for four weeks, you've got to narrow it down. And the way I tried to narrow it down was, to, was I wanted to focus specifically on misconceptions that we have as secular modern people that have the effect of dampening or inhibiting our ability to believe in and love and enjoy the love of God. To really feel extremely deeply that we are loved, that we were made to be the object of his love, that he loves us in his Christ, and he, he wants to form us into the selves, into the people and the beings he's made us to be. And um, so if uh, in, the, in the first weeks of this, we talked about that some of the misconceptions are, one, you're not supposed to feel this deep, like, heartwarming love of God just because somebody says God loves you. There's no shortcuts to feeling love. Love is something that comes from a process of a relationship between knowing the person loving you, knowing who you really are, and knowing what's really happening between you. And that's not something that just happens like that. It's something that you have to experience either concretely or through imagination so that it, something happens inside of you. And a lot of people think that they're spiritually broken because somebody said God loves you and they don't really feel that way. And so they think that maybe they don't, they don't, maybe they're not religious naturally or something. And it has nothing to do with that. There's just no shortcut to any kind of love feeling it. And we have to remember how to be human sometimes before we can even remember how to be spiritual. The second thing is, is that God's love is unfailing, not unconditional. Sometimes we take the shortcut and just say God's love is unconditional, which isn't technically wrong. It's just ambiguous. Unconditional can mean two things. One, there are literally no conditions. Everything passes as love. And the other is, it never quits and never stops. It's unfailing. And the Bible never says that God's love is unconditional. But it says everywhere that it's unfailing. 
right? And then the third thing, a lot of people stumble over the fact that in the Bible, God reveals himself as a jealous God. They've seen a lot of bad jealousy. They've seen a lot of selfish or violent jealousy, and they think jealousy is bad, therefore God is not perfect, therefore the biblical God must be ugly. But the problem with that is, is that it misunderstands another human thing. If you love anything covenantally, anything deeply, you will have a protective response to it being endangered. That protective response is jealousy. If you're not capable of feeling jealousy, you're not capable of loving covenantally, not meaningfully. And in fact, because the Bible reveals us as incredibly unfaithful creatures, theologians call it whoredom, that human beings are kind of whores. Like, we'll just run after whatever we think is going to make us happy, whenever we want, however we want. You know, whoever dangles something in front of us, we'll just dance off after it. And the only thing that could possibly redeem us is somebody who loves us with a protective, jealous love. And the, the jealousy of God is the necessary connection to the covenantal love of God, and it is our only hope. It is one of the greatest things about the love of God. I, if you want to hear more about that, go to last week's sermon. But this week, what I want to spend a little time on is the question, okay, in terms of practically loving, being loved by God, us loving other people, us receiving love from other people, what does love actually demand in practice? What does it mean to actually love or be loved? And this is important. It's very, very important because if you don't get this right, if you don't understand how to be loved and to love, you will hate God. You will hate the way he loves you. And you will think that it's a virtue that you hate, you hate the way he loves you. And you will seal yourself off from being corrected about that misconception. And you won't experience God's love. And it will be terrible. The second thing is that if you don't understand what love is really, in terms of how it's received and what it means, then you're always going to be kind of a love mark. Like, you're always going to be kind of a love sucker. Because if you don't really understand what love is, you won't actually know when you're being loved and when you're not being loved. And you may push away people who are really trying to love you and cling to you, people who are really, really just creatures of sycophancy and flattery. And then thirdly, by really understanding what God's love is like, how it functions, you can actually enter into the capacity you have to love with the beauty of God as you bear his image and as you become like Christ in incredibly creative, incredibly restoring ways, in ways that some of us have not yet ever imagined that you've never experienced. Okay, so one way to think about this is this. One of the difficulties that we have in the secular culture that we live in is that um, love feels like the sort of thing that is sufficiently romantic that if you think about it too carefully, or if you like, you try to dissect it and make, it's, it, it, you're going to kill it. Like, it's not going to be fun. Like, it's supposed to be sexy. You don't want to be too explicit about it. And so we tend to think about love on the basis of our emotional intuitions. What is love, right? And based on our emotional intuitions and based on what people say out of their emotional intuitions and reinforce, there's this, there's this feeling in our culture that love is when somebody gives you what you feel like you need. That the way you desire to be treated and the way you want to be loved, that if somebody gives you that, then they're being loving. And if they refuse to do that, then they're not being loving. In fact, if they refuse to do it, they might be hateful, right? Now, the problem with that, like the problem with all misconceptions, is that there's truth in it, right? So, a lot of Christians know the hundred-year-old book, um, The Five Love Languages, okay? So there's like these love languages, right, that people like to be loved. So there's like acts of service and words of encouragement and physical touch and quality time and something else. Um, 
And so you can imagine like this Christian couple, they go to church, they're married and everything, right? And they're sitting down and they're like going through the love languages book. And the wife gets done with like her little section. She's like, I know what my love language is. It's physical touch. It's the love language every husband wished was his wife's love language, but never is, you know? And, and he's like, oh, that's really great, honey. And he goes, I've gone through my thing. And it turns out mine's quality time, which is what every wife wants her husband's to be, but it never is. And— <laughs> And so they're like, they're like, oh, that's really cool. And so like the wife realizes like he needs quality time. And he realizes that like she needs the right kind of physical touch. And if they realize what the other one wants and what the other one needs, they can love each other better, right? Is that wrong? How can it be wrong when it feels so right, right? It's totally right. It's totally fine. It's great. It's great. We all have idiosyncrasies and we want to be loved in certain ways. And a lot of those, part of loving somebody is understanding how they're different from you, right? All right, now imagine a, a, the, the same couple, and they're doing the same thing, okay? But they get a little bit different result when they go through it, right? They go through, and the wife gets to the end, and she's like, she's like, I feel like my love language is physical touch. Like, I need to—right? And he goes through, he's like, look, I've gone through this, and some of these are kind of close, but I like—I feel like I have a sixth love language, and it's like being supported and having a mistress. So, like, I, I feel like— you know, men aren't really wired for monogamy, and why try to get all your fulfillment out of one relationship? I feel like that puts too much pressure on you, honey. And so I just really feel like if you really wanted to love me, and our relationship was going to be all it could be, I feel like not just not sniffing through my phone and looking through my text messages to catch me with a mistress. It'd be better if you just supported me in having a mistress. It'd be great if I even had someone in our budget, right? Now, that wife is not going to respond the same in the first scenario and in the second scenario unless they live in France, right? And so—I'm just kidding. It's, it's only partly true, right? And so that's different, right? But see, both of those are like, love me the way I want to be loved. And one is perfectly right, and the other, it's not okay. And how, what gives—and here, here's like, partly it's what we need to pay attention is there are a lot of people who think that the second scenario is reasonable now. There's a lot of people. Right? There are whole subcultures that function that way, okay? And that if you won't do that, then you're like, you're too clingy, possessive, and jealous! Right? What's the difference? How does it work? Okay, and so all of the last sermons that I've done on this all are displayed in these couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 13, which talk about love. It says, the apostle says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects—there's jealousy. It always hopes, always trusts, always perseveres, love never fails. So you see all of them there. One is, love is always truthful. And truth here means more than just truth because it's counterimposed in parallelism with evil. So it's not love does not delight in, fal delight in falsehood, but rejoices with the truth. It's, it doesn't delight in evil. So truth here means something like the true good. It has a moral implication. The true good. Love doesn't delight in a false evil. It delights in a true good. Right? It does it First and foremost, in relationship to evil and good, protectively. It's jealous. And it never gives up. It always trusts that there's another way. It always hopes that maybe something new will break if they, if they don't quit. It always perseveres. It doesn't say that because that happened in the past, nothing good can happen in the future. I'm going to stick with it. Love does not fail, right? If you look at—now, that's a didactic way to look at it in terms of teaching, but in terms of, like, picture, what Christians have normally done throughout the history of Christianity is we've looked to Jesus to show us what love is, right? And that's exactly how John in John's Gospel tells us we should look at Jesus. And in chapter 17 and 14 in John's Gospel, I mean, 
Jesus says in John 14, when Philip says, when are you going to show us the Father? And Jesus says, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? Jesus is the display of the love of God. And he came because of the love of God. Because God so loved the world, he sent his one and only Son. Right? And in the first verses of John, John explicitly says that Jesus is displaying this love in a very specific way. It says, the Word, that is the Christ or the Son, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. A few verses later it says, From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, that is the Christ or the Son, has made him known. And so over and over again in John's gospel, as he's trying to explain to us what love is, love is seen in the actions, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And what that displays to us is this, this two-point idea of grace and truth, right? When you put together with 1 Corinthians, it, it becomes pretty straightforward what it means to give and receive love, what love is in full integrity, right? And that is something like this, that the expression of love demands true goodness by the means of grace. And by means of grace, if you're Christian enough to know what that can mean, I don't mean spiritual disciplines as means of grace. By means of grace, I mean it, it comes by means of graciousness, okay? So let's break down those two. First, love demands true goodness. Love demands true goodness. You cannot reasonably, honestly, or with integrity tell yourself or confess to another that you are loving them if your action is not in their true good to the best of your knowledge. Now, from God, it's, it's always in your perfect true good because he has sufficiently complete knowledge to know. With us, we're always working on partial information. But love always demands that the best the knower can know that they're acting in the true good of another person, right? One of the misconceptions that comes up about love is that in order for God to love us, because of that intuition I said before, love is like me, you giving me what I desire, what I feel like I need. And if that's true, my needs could be infinitely flexible. And so what that might mean is, is that God's principles of love must be sufficiently flexible to love me in my flexible need. And th that's not true. It's not true. In fact, okay, I'm going to say something in this. This may make you angry, but hopefully it'll make you think, okay? I do not know of any character in the Bible or anywhere in literature or anywhere in creation whose love is more inflexible than God's. God's love, on the level of principle, that is truth, could not be more inflexible. And yet, as we'll talk about in the second point, it could not be more adaptable. That's the tension you got to get. you got to get that tension. That God's love is not flexible. It is not flexible at all in its principles. It is always aiming at the true good. Always. It never deviates from that. And yet, as we'll talk about in the second half of the sermon, it is extremely adaptable in how it functions. Now think about this for a second. Just think of the examples. Just in this passage that Femi read. Okay, so you've got You've got five sets of characters. You've got the parents. You've got small children. You've got the disciples who are rebuking them. And then you've got the rich young ruler, right? So how does this—how does this roll? Okay, so Jesus does a bunch of different things, right? So he—the parents bring the little children. The disciples rebuke the parents, right? So Jesus gets involved. He's like, whoa! 
And it says that it, it, there's two places in here in this passage where there is a— Mark tells us something emotional about Jesus. In the first case, it says he's indignant. He's, he's upset. And the word rebuke is, is not just like, hey, we shouldn't do this. Rebuke is meant to say, like, you're doing the wrong thing. It's a public and forceful, like, pushback. And Jesus gets really angry. He's like, hey, this is not okay. Like, you need to step back. You need to let these kids come to me, right? And then he turns on everybody, right? So he's like, hey, kids. And then he's like, the parents, the disciples, everybody. He's like, listen, these kids are so important. You need to understand that if you don't become like one of these little children, you're never entering the kingdom of God, right? And then after that's all over, and he blesses all the kids, then this like rich guy comes in, like falls at his feet, like on his knees. He's like, Jesus, how do I enter the, get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, it's kind of weird that you call me good because that should either mean that you're saying I'm God or that's wrong. You shouldn't be calling anybody good because nobody's good but God, right? And then he says, like, you need to keep the commandments. And the guy's like, well, I've done all that, right? Which is, Jesus literally just said at the beginning of the sentence, no one's good, right? Like he gave him the answer. I mean, it's like, it's like being in like a modern high school class where like they give you the study guide, which is basically just the answers before the test and you still fail it. You know what I mean? And so like, and then it says, after this guy gives this terrible response, okay? So he's clearly kind of devout because he's not kneeling before a rabbi that like has all kinds of social power. I mean, Jesus is like, a, like he's like the scrappy rabbi. I mean, he's not like the Sadducee who's connected with Herod and stuff. Like there's no connections here. This guy's got plenty of connections. And yet he falls on his knees. Like there's, there's, there's devotion in him, right? And, but he's totally off his, like off his Gordon relationship to what goodness is. He just doesn't get it, right? And it says that Jesus looked at him and this story is told in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, as far as I know. This is the only one. Mark adds a word. It's the only place where it says, he looked at him and loved him. Right? At which time he said, because he loved him, right? He goes, he goes, come here. Come here. And he gives the rich young ruler a big hug. Right? And then they go and they have falafel together. <laughs> it's love. Right? No, he like— he says to this guy, okay, there's one thing you lack to receive eternal life, like to go to heaven, sell everything that you have and get rid of all your titles and position and then come and follow me, right? Now, on one level, you're kind of like, that's crazy. Okay, think about it this way, opportunity-wise. Of all of humanity in all of time, there was only one Messiah and he only issued that invitation to 13 people in all of the human race. The 12 disciples or apostles and to this guy. It was the biggest opportunity in the cosmos. He couldn't see it, right? But notice, every activity of Jesus, every action that he takes, is absolutely dead-on focused at the true good of whoever he's talking about or dealing with. So, the kids should come to Jesus! The whole point of, of the Son of God becoming an incarnate Son of incarnate human being, right, is to demonstrate the humans have access to God. We can come to God. God wants us to come to him. He, he has gone way out of his way so that we would know that we would come to him and that we would come to him with like basically no merit. We, we really don't have anything. We didn't win it. We didn't—we're not good enough, right? He explains that to the rich young ruler in just a minute. And so kids are like the perfect example, and his disciples clearly don't get that. So he starts with the fact that like, first of all, Human beings have access to me. That truth cannot be marginalized. Right? So the first thing he does is like, bring me the kids. If they want to come to me, they get to come to me. 
Now listen, the, it's not that the disciples are mean or something. Earlier in Mark's gospel, Jesus' ministry is so active that his family is afraid he's going to go insane. Right? There's a point in Mark 4, I think it is, where the, his family comes, they try to take him back to like Nazareth. Like, you're going to go crazy. Like, you're burning the candle at both ends. This can't go on. There's points where people, they're afraid he's going to be crushed by all the people. They put him in a boat and like float him off the shore so that he can't get rushed by everybody. Like, it's reasonable to think as his disciple that like Jesus can't do everything. All right, so what are we going to cut out? Maybe like blessing time with the babies. How about that, right? Maybe he can get a nap or something or write another sermon. He's been doing that sermon on the mount so many times, you know? And, but so you see, for Jesus, he's in this public situation, and he realizes that there is a fundamental truth about the love of God that is getting violated, which is a bunch of people are being told they don't have access, right? And so in addition to that, he humiliates his best friends. Okay? You humiliate—now, some of you are like, humiliation, that's a terrible word. You should never humiliate anybody. No, humiliation is a very important human phenomenon, okay? Um, now, so I have—I have, I have a, probably two dozen memories from my entire childhood, okay? That's a good sign, all right? Because, like, if nothing interesting happened in your childhood, you don't remember anything. Because there's only a couple reasons people remember things. And listen, I know some of you young people, you have, like, 28-year-old or less brains, and you remember all kinds of stuff. And that's great, okay? I was like that, too, when I was your age, okay? But, but after, you know, you get, you get about 35, and the only thing that stays in your mind is the stuff you use all the time, or the stuff that is burned in, okay? And the only stuff that's burned in is the stuff that's basically a little traumatic, right? And so— some of my—most of my very profound memories that I don't use every day are a little traumatic, and they usually involve me getting kind of humiliated. Now, about half of them, or some portion of them, are terrible. They have no redemptive purpose, and they're wounds that I've been bearing my whole life, and I'm still trying to get over. Just to, every time I think about them, I'm just embarrassed by them, and I've been—I've been like working through some of them over the last year so that I, rem I still remember them, but I don't have an emotional reaction to them anymore, which is what's supposed to happen over time with trauma if you work through it, which you should. If you have a memory of any traumatic event that's more than 18 months old, and when you think of it, you have a profound emotional experience, you have not dealt with it the way you need to. And you probably need to seek counseling or at least somebody who will very candidly and lovingly listen to you, okay? It's very important. Now, moving on. However, there was one time where I went on a retreat to New York City while I was a college student with Alexi and some other college students, and um, we were working in a soup kitchen. The guy who ran it was a 60-year-old like, six guy named Curly. He was totally bald, and he was like, kind of a big dude. And uh, like, we're going around serving people. And in this like, fellowship hall where they had the uh, soup kitchen, there was a, a mirror that kind of went all the way around. You know how they did that like, in the 90s to make rooms look bigger? You know what I'm talking about? And I was like 19 at the time. And so while I'm working in the soup kitchen, so I'm like in the soup kitchen for six hours serving hundreds of homeless people, right? And I did this like on my break from college. Instead of like going home or like going on spring break or some fun thing with my girlfriend, like I went to New York City, like and worked with homeless people, okay? And so there's this one point during the meal where I'm clearing off a table and as kind of a shortcut, because I didn't want to walk all the way over to get the, the rag, there were some crumbs on the very end of the table and I used the hand duster that you're supposed to use on the floor to sweep them into— a pan so I could throw them in the garbage, okay? I did not realize that before that, Curly had seen me looking at myself in the mirror periodically as I was walking around the room, right? So he yells at me from across the room. He runs all the way across the room, grabs me under the arm, pushes me over the wall. Like, he'd go to prison now. Like, it, like it was like an assault, right? Pushes me against the wall, 
everybody's looking, right? Including the woman who would become my wife, okay? And he goes, he's like, don't you dare use a broom meant for the floor on the table and impugn the dignity of these image-bearing people. How dare you? You get the thing and you wipe it down. Don't you dare this. You're the vainest, most self-involved person I've ever met. I've seen you looking in these mirrors. You walk around the room. You're interested in how you look. Then serving the people you're here to serve. It's all a fake thing to you. You're the most vain person I've ever seen. Now go get a rag and wipe the table down like you're supposed to. Right? Okay, listen. I felt a little traumatized. I was pretty embarrassed. If somebody told me that I had to pay $10,000 right now for that to still be part of my past, I'd pay it right now. No questions asked. I'd write out a check right now for $10,000 to have that in my past still, instead of it just be wiped away. A certain portion of the times I've been humiliated in my life have been the most important events in my life. And they have burned themselves into my heart, and I will never forget them, and they've shaped who I am today in a positive way. Right? I could tell you five or six more stories, but I won't. When you see, these are the apostles. These are the people who will define what the church is. They will carry in their hearts and minds what the meaning of the gospel is. They cannot get this wrong. This whole, these people have access to God. They can't get that wrong. And so Jesus comes on them. He's so indignant, and he just rips into them for love. Because the true good is they must know this forever. Something's going to happen at this moment. These guys are never going to forget. What do you think? Do you you think Peter would easily forget the time where he's like, no, Jesus, you're not going to go to the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right? Do you notice that's in Mark's gospel really clearly? Because Peter was the source of Mark's gospel. Jesus remembered that very clearly. Okay? Even when Jesus humiliates people, and he does it relatively frequently, actually, in the gospels, He's always laser-focused on their true good. Every interaction, everything he does. If you try to make sense of all the different ways Jesus treats people, the only thing that strings it all together into a single unified whole is that he is always, always, always acting for their true good. Now, sometimes people struggle with this, but here's here's an example of how you can think about it. Think about biology for a second. One of the reasons why there can even be a discipline of biology, and we can even study it, scientifically, is because it has a lot of immutable principles that just don't change. They're completely inflexible, right? Math, chemistry, physics, they're a little bit inflexible, which is awesome, right? But life displays itself in incredibly adaptable ways. The platypus? Okay, it's the only creature on planet Earth that nurses its young and has no nipples. Think about that. How does that even work? Right? I know, but we need to keep moving. Okay, so (laughs) similarly, love is kind of like that. The true good, fundamental truths of reality that God will stand behind and will bring into our lives for our true good, what we were meant to be, what is really true, what is part of his glorious, unchangeable character. That is always, always, always the focus. But like the chemistry and the and the physics and the math behind biology, but there's all kinds of crazy critters. It is the, partly the inflexibility that creates the infinite adaptability. But if you don't accept that that is fundamental to love, you can't, you can't receive God's love. It'll never feel loving to you. 
you won't be able to love other people because you won't do it with integrity and you won't really know when you're being loved because you won't have the capacity to authenticate real love. And Aaron asked me as I was preparing the sermon, she's like, well, then how do you, how, how, what do I do then? How do I master it? And the answer is just, just be a Christian. Have Christian friends who are learning how to love. Go to a church that preaches the gospel and the Bible so that you can grow in it. Read the written scriptures. Get to know the real Jesus. Get a mentor. Be part of a— Do the stuff where you learn more about the gospel and the faith and the Christ and the God who revealed himself in that Christ and read his scriptures, and you will grow over time in these things. You will learn to understand more deeply what the true good is, and then you will see what is love and what isn't. Now, the second thing is that true goodness is given through grace. True goodness is given through grace. Um, grace is essentially giving to someone what they don't have any claim to at a cost to yourself. And if that grace is loving, it will always be in line with the true good, right? But grace is giving to somebody, somebody something they don't deserve and at your expense, right? If I give you somebody else's money, that's not grace. If you mind, it's grace. Does that make sense? Okay. So if you look at God's love, what you see is in relationship to the true good, it's completely inflexible. But because grace is essentially generosity, it can take those in inflexible principles and it can apply them in a million different ways. It's incredibly adaptable, right? Think about the examples. Jesus treats every single person differently in this passage. He treats the children differently than the disciples, differently than the crowd, differently than the rich young ruler. He treats everyone differently. Everybody gets a completely different action towards them on the basis of what they need, adapted to where they are and who they are and how they require it. Now, that leads, I think, to the second misconception, which is a lot of people believe that being gracious means being nice. Okay, now listen. If being gracious means being nice, then you need to tear the Gospel of John out of your Bible. Because there is no reasonable argument that can be made if you actually read about Jesus that he is the embodiment of grace if grace means being nice. I mean, I could stand here for four hours giving you examples from the Gospels of Jesus doing stuff that you would not think is nice. Right? He humiliates his best friend. Some guy comes in and wants to know how he can get eternal life. He gets this runaround where he has to sell everything. Jesus doesn't tell anybody else they have to sell everything. Tells that guy he has to sell everything. Why would he do that? That's not very nice, right? Nicodemus in John 3, I mean, like, this is a pretty pious religious guy. This is a guy who stands up for Jesus later in the Gospel of John and actually asks for his body so he can give, give him a good burial later. Jesus gives him the theological runaround. The guy's like, so what, what, what? Jesus is like, you've got to be born again. Like, you know, we're Christians now. We've been talking about being born again for 2,000 years. We all think we know what that means. Can you imagine what Nicodemus thought that meant? Like, he's like, listen, you know, Nicodemus is like, listen, I— God is with you, like, clearly, and, like, I just kind of want to know what you mean. And Jesus is like, listen, here's what you need to know. Unless you're born again, you can't ever see the kingdom of God. Boom! Right? And Nicodemus is like, what does that even mean? And he's like, no, definitely. You need to be born again. And the guy's like, what is, does that mean being, getting back in a uterus? Like, what? And then Jesus, right when he's, like, starting to work it out, Jesus is like, it's like the wind. It just kind of blows. And Nicodemus is like, what does the wind have to, what are you talking about? And like, he's like, you know, when Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, and he's like, what the, that's in the middle of numbers somewhere. What are you even talking about? Right? 
John 2, he makes a whip, flips over tables. He's whip, whipping at everybody. He probably hit somebody. Right? Like you just go through, there's a place, the Syrophoenician woman, she's like, will you heal, will you heal me? And he's like, well, I don't think you can take children's food and give it to their dogs. Right? That's kind of, that's kind of offensive. Even the people that where we think Jesus was nice to them, like half the time we're kidding ourselves. Like the, like the woman at the well in John 4. I've heard all kinds of like, Stuff about like, well, you know, in the, you know, in the ancient world, once you were divorced once, then like you had to marry whoever you wanted, and she's kind of a victim, and who knows, maybe she was sexually assaulted. And, okay, listen. What the text actually says is that she comes out in the middle of the day to get her water. Jesus is talking to her. They're having a conversation that seems like it could go somewhere. So Jesus says, why don't you get your husband, and then we'll all talk together. And she's like, I don't have a husband. And he goes, I know, because you've had five, and you're living with a dude who isn't your husband. That's not being nice. <laughs> right? Like, what, maybe, maybe she is a victim. What if she was sexually, what if all that's true? Then Jesus shouldn't have said that. Why would he get all combative with her and be like, you're basically lying to me. You told me something that was technically true, but you're basically lying to me. And then she's like, whoa, I can see you're a prophet. Yeah, you're darn right, evasive girl. <laughs> right? That's not nice. It's loving. It's kind. It's good. It's ruthlessly focused on her true good. What she needed. Right? Being gracious doesn't mean being nice. Okay, well then what does it mean? What does it mean? Right? I already did the example. Sorry. It means something like this. Okay? It means you give the, you give the other person something toward the true good in the form that is their best chance at receiving it. You give the true good to another person in a way that is their best chance at receiving it. It's the best definition I can come up with. You give them what they really need, and you give it to them in a way, the best you know about them, the best you know about humanity, the best you know about their hang-ups, the best you know about the difficulties, the best you know about the situation, the best you know about how things have been framed already, the best you think about the culture around you, all that stuff together. You wrap that all in a blender, and you pour it into a, the, what they need smoothie, and you give them the best you can to give them the best shot at receiving their true good. And see, once you see that, you can see that though God's principles are like scientifically inflexible, the application of love is like artistically, it's like the Milky Way of possibilities. There is no two moments where the action of love could possibly be the same. And where sometimes where only you can step in and nobody else can. Let me tell you a really quick story. There's an Indian family in this church um, who just had a baby five weeks preemie and is jaundiced. And one of the things that you absolutely have to have medically in that situation is the baby absolutely has to have breast milk. And the mom just can't do it. And so they bought a week of breast milk. You know how much a week of breast milk costs for a preemie? 600 bucks. This is not a family with a lot of money. And so the dad, they're members here, the dad puts on the hub in the classifieds, hey, we need a ton of breast milk. <laughs> just, I mean, just imagine what's going to be on the hub next week, right? And so, <laughs> in like three days, 
four moms who were kind of at the end of nursing their own kids thought, hey, why not just lactate six months longer? And they busted out the breast pumps, and this family has more milk than they need to feed their preemie son. I've never even heard of that at a church before. Who would even ask? Right? That's, look, that's somebody who understands what Jesus' people should be like, that you can ask for breast milk, right? That's all. And then somebody's like, sure. Some little tiny woman about this big, he, he's, he's like, I can't believe how much she can produce. It's crazy. <laughs> so good. Like, I cannot tell you, like, I, I almost burst into tears in my office. Almost burst into tears. I couldn't believe it. And like, I, dang it, I wish I was a platypus. I got nipples. I can't do anything. Like, I can't. I can't get in there, right? But like these women are like, I will do that. That's what's necessary. That's what that family needs to feel the love of God. And there's all kinds of stuff that that family needs I can't do, but I can do this. I can get in there and give them the thing they need so that they can see that, the, that Jesus changing me makes a difference to them. One of the saddest but most important realities about human beings, it's not logically right, but it's psychologically factual, is that People decide whether or not God loves them based on how you treat them. Because it's so hard to know if anything's true in this world. One of the only things that authenticates itself is sacrifice. It's the only thing people can't help but believe in. Right? Okay. So let's do some quick applications, okay? Are you with me? Can you like this one? Okay, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. All right, one. God will only love you by giving you what he knows is your true good, not whatever you ask for. I know some of you are like, but it says in the Bible that if I ask for anything in his name, that he'll give it to me. Okay, that's not what that verse means. It doesn't mean like he gave you a magic incantation in Jesus' name. And like if you say the magic incantation, it'll burst out of the stone table in like chapter 6 of Narnia. Like that's not what it means, okay? What it, what it means is, is that when you ask for things, in the true good that God is trying to do in the world, and you want to work graciously in that true good, and you ask God to participate in it, like the life of Jesus, he will meet you. He will respond to that kind of faith. It doesn't mean you're going to get whatever you want. You're not going to get whatever you want. God is always going to do what's in your true good. And sometimes that is the last thing you want. And that's why most people come to hate the love of God. Because God is looking forward to the eternal celestial you. I mean, think about this. Even if God listened to you, to what you wanted, let me ask this question. He's eternal. Which you? He sees the you 20 years from now as much as he sees you right now. He sees the you 10,000 years from now as much as the you right now. What do you think the 10,000 years from you now is telling God, would ask God to do to the now you? Something totally different than you're asking for. Even if he listened to you stretched through eternity, he still wouldn't do what you're asking for now. All right, okay, let's move on. Um, God will always love you in relationship to your true good. So he will always love you towards these things. And he will burn these to ashes in your own life. And he will call other people to burn these things to ashes in their own life so that his true good can be formed in you. And so if you get attached to your material crap, and I use that word advisedly, it's very likely love will destroy you. Do you understand? See, you think you want God's love. Everybody thinks they want love. Be very careful what you ask for. 
right? Okay. Third or whatever. Um, God is working in your life to give you your best chance. That's what his grace means. You may want him to act graciously towards you in a certain way, like to let you off the hook on something or to make something go better in your life. That's not what he's—that's not what grace means. Grace doesn't mean nice. God doesn't have to be nice to you. He's not going to be nice to you. He's certainly not going to be nice to you by your definition of nice. But he is going to be gracious to you. He is the gracious one. And what he's doing is he will give you your best chance at accepting the true good so you can be what you're meant to be. He will always give you that. He's all, that is what he's always working for you. And that is one of the ways he displays his gracious love. I think this is fourth. He has already done it in Christ. What you really need, giving you your best chance, he has already come and died for you. Okay, I re- listen, I realize that is a feelingless cliche to us. I get, like, I totally get that. Same thing's true for me. It is so hard for that, for me to say Jesus died for me and for that to do anything for me, okay? I, like, I get that. But it's because we're broken, man. It's not because that's not astounding. We have to find a place in our hearts and ask God to do something by his spirit and take ourselves into his word and listen to the sort of preaching that focuses on the gospel and the scriptures. We have to do the sorts of things that might aliven it in us because he has already given you your best chance. He has already given you his Christ and the cross and his spirit and the scriptures and the church so that you would have your best chance. And in the midst of all that, he is working beautiful providences in your life to try to bring you to where you can fully receive every step of the true good for you because he loves you. Until you understand God's love, you're kind of going to be a love sucker. And I don't mean—well, I mean that in both ambiguous senses. You will need all kinds of love from other people because there will be no fountain of God's love from inside of you, so you'll be a love sucker like a vampire. But I actually mean it the other way. You'll be like a love mark, right? You'll be like easily manipulated because unless you know what real love is, you just won't know if you're being loved truly or not. And that's extraordinarily dangerous because you absolutely need love, and you will give yourself to something or someone you think is loving you. A movement, or some people, or a person, and you need to be very careful if you don't know what love is. Twelfth, whatever it is. Don't push away very far the people who are trying to do you good no matter how much they annoy you right now, okay? This is especially true for younger people, okay? If you have, especially if you live with your parents, but it's true for everybody. If somebody is bringing the heat on you and being like, look, you gotta face this, man. You gotta change. You gotta, you need to quit acting like this. They're like, they're telling you the hard thing and it's annoying the heck out of you because either you don't want to hear it or you actually think it's wrong, okay? And you are in a place where you won't accept it. At least do this. Don't push them away very far. Because you may find very soon you have need of them because you'll find they're the only one who really loves you. You want to know more about that besides reading the Bible? Read King Lear. That whole play is about that. Okay. Twentieth, um, you can love God. You can love like God, even though you can't. Okay. It's exciting. You can love like God, even though you can't. Okay. Listen. Obviously, you don't know everything about everything. So, knowing the absolute perfect, true good for every single person, exactly, you don't have. And obviously, you don't know everything about the situation of every single thing. So, the perfect adaptation of the principles of true love through grace in every situation is not going to be perfect. Okay, like, I, yes, yes. You literally can't love exactly like God. But 
the, our capacity and potential to love very much like God is profoundly expressed in the Bible. And we're supposed to be given great hope that we can know the true good in Christ. Our minds can be renewed in the image of our Creator, that we can be reformed in true godliness and holiness, not self-righteousness, but a real burning love of God for others that is sacrificial, that knows their true good and is willing to sacrifice and to exert enormous creativity to give them the best chance at what they really need. And you can be that person. You can be the kind of person that people say that about and love that about on a level, on a level that we have not probably even dreamed about. You may have never experienced it in anybody in your life. We, you and I, have, we have almost no idea the potential of love that exists. Even a lot of us who have good relationships. Listen, love is the deepest thing in the universe. It goes—you might be really loving somebody. It can go so much deeper. You have no idea how loving you're going to be in 10,000 years. You're going to say that in my life before this, I, I played at love like a mist, and now I swim in it like a river. Right? Okay. I've said kind of a good bit about, like, sometimes love has a little, like, slap on it. Like, Jesus is really tough with people, and he's not always nice and all of that, and that's all true. But listen, it's very easy, especially if you're kind of a disagreeable person, for you to be like, what Nick is saying is we need to go out there. We need to tell people stuff. We need to get in their face. We need to tell them what to do. We need to— Right? And when they come and complain to me, I'm going to say that you're an idiot. That's what's going to happen. Okay? Because, Because the thing is, is like, it's very easy to be like, okay, I need to do the true good. That means I need to, sh- like, attack. Okay, no. What most people need most of the time is encouragement. Okay? And if you and I would nine-tenths of the time before somebody's in crisis, just when they don't seem to need anything, we just go out of our way to affirm them and encourage them and build them up and help give them momentum in the right direction, you might never, ever have to confront them. A lot of the confrontation we have to have in our lives is because we are not encouragers. We are not upbuilders. Listen, the whole universe, according to Genesis 1, came into being because God spoke a word. Jesus the Christ is the word made flesh. One of the ways you bear the image of God is your capacity to speak. And the power that your speech has in the lives of everybody in creation, your words matter. Every stray word you type on the internet, every word you say to somebody in your life, everybody you do or do not greet on the street, every, everything you say or don't say to the server in the restaurant, everything that come out, comes out of your mouth comes out of your p- mouth with a certain kind of divine power. That's why it says in First Peter, let everyone who speaks in the church speak as though they're speaking the very words of God. That's not meant to make us arrogant. That's meant to make us terrified. When you open your mouth and you talk to another human being, you had better talk like you're speaking on God's behalf. You choose your words carefully. And the authority that he's given you to speak is the authority to build up and not tear down. If you've got to tear out a room because the drywall's rotten, it's only because you're going to rebuild it. Right? Now, if you have to be hard, if you have to be hard, think in a surgical metaphor, Okay? anesthetize, and then cut with a scalpel, right? Comfort. Tell the people you care—tell them you care about them. Do something sacrificially to show it. 
Tell them how much you value in them. Tell them that it hurts you a lot to even have to say this. Tell them that you're willing to do anything necessary to walk with them through it. Do everything you can to show them that they are adored and loved and cared for and secure and bonded to you. And then when you do cut, don't cut with a garden hoe. You get out a scalpel and you cut exactly where you need to cut. Not one stray word, not one word in pride, not one word in anger, you cut with a scalpel, right? St. John Chrysostom in the fourth century called it the cautery of the Christian ministry because people used to cut and then cauterize in surgery. He's like, that's what you're doing. You're cutting and then you burn them and you have to do it exactly right for their good. Otherwise, you're a bad doctor. And so if you have to cut, anesthetize, love them, and then cut very carefully. And last, just be eagerly patient in your growth in love. Definitely strive graciously. Be eager to grow in love, but be patient, okay? Love is the most complicated thing in the world. It is every virtue in perfect expression, in perfect unity, in perfect proportion, perfectly connected to every situation, okay? It is more complicated than rocket science. It is beyond calculus. You have never done anything so complicated in all your life. It is very difficult. You were created to be up to the challenge, though. And so realize that it's just, it's going to take time. You're going to grow your whole life, right? Do you remember? Do you guys remember 2 Peter 1, 5? Say it with me if you want to. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Love is built on so many things. There's so many prerequisites and foundational realities in our character so that we become strong enough to love and passionate enough to love and focused enough to love and driven enough to love and emotional enough to love. And it's just, it's going to take time. And, but be eager in your growth in that time. Because real love requires us to be focused on the true good and for us to execute that true love with all grace. Because love is the most inflexible thing in the world that is also the most beautifully adaptable thing in the world. God, we pray that you'd help us to love, to receive love, to give love in a way that brings you glory, that is for the great good of everyone in our life, whether they believe in you or not, whether they deserve it or not, whether they're nice to us or not. And I pray that in it, we would be forged into eternal creatures of glory through the gospel and because of the death of your Son. Lead us in the trail of the only perfectly loving human there's ever been. And make us as like him as we can be, we pray in his name. Amen.